This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. This episode contains some discussion of murder. It won't be graphic, but discretion is advised. Also, it's the second part in our series about the American West. It can stand on its own, but feel free to go back one episode for more context. Ella Watson, this woman who homesteaded, and by all accounts and by all records, didn't do anything wrong or illegal. But she was persecuted first in the papers, with all these accusations being lobbed at her of cattle wrestling, of prostitution, theft, lying, etc., and they, they did that for so long and so well that the majority of the people believed it. This is Sylvia Bruner, director of the Jim Gatchell Museum in Buffalo, Wyoming, talking about Ellen Watson. We recorded our interview during the COVID-19 pandemic, so our voices will sound a little muffled by the masks. Wyoming in 1889 was a rugged, open place, a vast expanse of wind-swept plains, The Homestead Act allowed people to file a claim, pay a fee, and they could own land so long as they proved up the parcel. Building fences, a house, maybe a barn. Ellen Watson was one of those early homesteaders. Her plot was in Johnson County, near the town of Buffalo. She ran a small operation, just a few dozen head of cattle. Who could possibly get upset about that? Well, this was a time of great tension between small farms and massive industries. The big dogs were represented by the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, or WSGA. It was this group that commissioned a smear campaign against Ellen, a large organization fighting one woman. They called her a notorious cattle queen and a rustler. They even conjured up a nickname, Cattle Kate. She was just 28 years old in 1889. She was not a cattle rustler, and despite the nickname, she wasn't named Kate. And I think it's really only been in you know, recent decades that a lot of people have actually looked into the historical record and said, no, she was just a strong woman who was trying to make it on her own. In March of 1889, she bought her own brand. Now, brands are graphic trademarks for branding cattle, using a hot iron to place your stamp on an animal. With a brand registered, livestock displaying your symbol were understood to be yours, like stamping a copyright on a living creature. Ellen purchased 28 cattle from someone headed west on the Oregon Trail. Naturally, the cattle reproduced and her investment grew. She was a homesteader, a farmer, and a wife with a small herd of her own. doesn't seem like she did anything. Certainly nothing that caused her to deserve being hanged. 
Stock detectives spotted her cows during the roundup, branded with her symbol. They assumed that she stole them. Perhaps in their mind, they couldn't piece together how a woman acquired that many cattle in so short a time. A group of men got together, drank alcohol, and complained about her, rehashing reports of her cattle rustling, the whole cattle Kate thing. They'd seen cows with her brand, and they weren't going to stand by while rumors of her stealing from the big cattlemen floated around. The men knocked down her fences and surrounded Ellen. She promised to show them the bill of sale, the one she received when she purchased the cattle, but it was in Rollins, and the men weren't going to let her get it. They forced Ellen into their buggy and then went next door to pick up Jim Averill, her husband. They took the couple to a nearby stand of trees and fashioned nooses. One of Jim's friends, tipped off to the kidnapping, tried to rescue them, shooting his gun at the captors. In the confusion of the gunfight, Jim and Ellen were pushed off their rocks and left to hang. In a normal execution, the victim is dropped from a height, breaking their neck. It's a much faster way to die. They were not afforded that option. Instead, Ellen and Jim died slowly, fighting against the ropes until growing too weak, and they suffocated. The six men who committed the murder were never indicted for the crime. Sensational articles in Cheyenne newspapers praised the actions of the drunken mob for ridding Johnson County of these heinous rustlers. Instead of being punished, two of the men became members of the executive committee of the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, the organization that represented big cattle. There was no penalty of any kind for these men who literally went out and kidnapped her, drove her around in a wagon while they drank and figured out what tree to hang her from, and then they killed her, and nothing ever happened to them. So they kind of had that knowledge that if they put this, this verbal and vocal spin on events, there probably wouldn't be any repercussions for them. What followed is one of the darkest chapters in Wyoming history, a battle between big cattlemen and settlers. We think of the West as free, independent, shirking intervention by the government and big business. The Johnson County War, with its spree of murders, which favored cattle barons and was fueled by the governor and bailed out by a sitting president, illustrates clearly that that assumption is just bull. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church, normally. This week, we're not really talking about Christianity. I need you to understand this story first before we can get there. But we're still going to press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. To understand what caused the deaths of Ellen Watson, Jim Averill, and so many others, we first have to talk about how cattle were grazed in Wyoming. Sylvia and I stood in a room at the Gatchel Museum with a number of paintings on the wall. On our far left was a pastoral scene with cows and rolling hills, typical of Johnson County. So during the 1860s, 70s, people were, were coming out to this area. Um, you know, you still had the Indian Wars that were occurring during the 1860s. After that had 
basically ended and all of the Native Americans were forced onto reservations, the U.S. government was really kind of pushing people to immigrate to the West and to file homesteads. Some of the homesteading land was more desirable than others. While there are high alpine mountains in some places and deserts in others, Wyoming is largely rolling sagebrush or prairie grass, hardy plants that survive with limited rainfall. Smart homesteaders chose plots close to water. Prior to all these homesteads being filled, you had a lot of people using just the open range. So they didn't have any kind of legal ownership of the land, nor did they probably ever intend to pursue that. And why would they? Much of the region was public domain, meaning anyone could run livestock anywhere because the property wasn't divided up into home sites. And large stock companies didn't pay taxes or fees to use a huge amount of space. So you had a lot of cattle being ran out here by pretty wealthy people, generally. And a lot of the wealthy owners never even set foot in what would become Wyoming. Um, They just had everything ran (laughs) sort of long distance for them by other people. That was the cattle barons. With more people moving in to claim land, the once open territory was gradually fenced off. Settlers taking part in the Homestead Act legally had defense property, often closing off streams from public domain access meaning the cattle barons may not be able to get their animals to water because the water was on private land. Tensions between the group were exacerbated by a particularly bad winter. Let me double check my dates and look at this. (laughs) That's why we're at the display. So it was the winter of 1886 to 1887. And apparently it was just this continuous blizzard that just would not let up. And a lot of the animals, including cattle, They'll kind of bunch up in a storm and they try to, you know, turn their backs to it and get away from it. And what that can cause is for them to kind of bunch up into corners at a fence and they can't really get out of it. And they literally smothered to death. Um, It was disastrous for a lot of the cattle barons. They suffered massive losses of cattle. It's estimated that in the winter of 1886 to 1887, ranchers in Wyoming lost as much as 50 percent of their livestock, 75 percent in neighboring Montana. This economic disaster hit the area hard and endangered the existence of the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, whose numbers dwindled in this time. Once that winter had occurred and they started racking up all of these losses, they also started laying off cowboys because they no longer needed them because their herd numbers were down. We like to think of cowboys as strong, independent white men with no bosses or controls on their lives. That myth is far from reality. Many cowboys were employed by large cattle operations. They had corporate bosses. They collected wages, about $40 a month. And one out of four were black. Now that many of them were unemployed, they couldn't go start a small herd of their own. The WSGA did what they could to prevent that. To prevent those same cowboys from becoming competition, they blacklisted them <laughs> through the Wyoming Stockbirds Association. It was really geared towards keeping cattle operations as kind of an elite club. If a cowboy ran their own herd or started their own brand, they were banned from ever working on a big ranch, which could mean economic ruin. 
settlers had to choose between waiting for a job with the big corporate operations or striking out on their own with no safety net. They couldn't just pick up a few hours at the neighboring ranch. So a lot of these cowboys that now were unemployed, they did file for homesteads and they did try to start their own herds and they did come direct competition for the barons. More homesteads meant less open land for the cattle barons to run their animals, fewer access points to water. This pitted big cattle operations against small. This could only last for so long. One of the men leading the fight for work and better wages was Nate Champion. Nate Champion was well-liked in Johnson County. He was short but strong, handsome, and with a stellar reputation. Um, he was a cowboy who came here from Texas, originally worked for some of the cattle barons, lost his job, started out on his own. Grazing his cows on public land, which meant less space for the big operations. This simply would not do with the WSGA members who didn't fancy competition. As they did with Ellen Cattle Kate Watson, they came up with a nickname. They deemed Champion the King of the Rustlers, even though there is no evidence that he ever stole any cattle. All cattle owners, they'd have spring and fall roundups because all of these animals were just kind of turned out and you didn't have a lot of fences still. Uh, so they would have these roundups, everything would be gathered, and then they would sort them out as to who they belonged to by brand. The sorting was always done by the big cattle operations. They'd go far and wide collecting the cows, gathering them together, and then they'd separate them according to the symbol burned into their hides, their brands. Some of the big operations had so many cows that they couldn't possibly brand them all, but they still wanted to claim them as their own. And what about newborn calves that have not been branded? They usually stick around with their mother, but if they got separated in the sorting, what were the cowboys supposed to do? Draw straws, take guesses, flip a coin? Who owns the unclaimed cows? Those motherless, unbranded calves are called mavericks. And there was a lot of dispute over what to do with mavericks, because it's hard to know who they belong to. The big companies lobbied hard for the right to perform the sorting. And when it came time to figure out who the Mavericks belonged to, they got the right to sell them to the highest bidder. So there was an incident at a roundup where um, Nate Champion and some other men, friends, acquaintances of his kind of rode in and they cut out cows and said, these are ours. And I guess there were some pretty strong words thrown around. Um, and it definitely identified Champion as an enemy of the WSGA. Nate Champion and his friends didn't like that only the big cattle operations could participate in the roundup, and that only they could claim Mavericks. So he started a cattle organization in direct competition to the WSGA and performed his own roundup. You just know the Wyoming Stock Growers Association wasn't going to have it. You know, it was kind of an easy way for them to increase their herd numbers and also to cause detriment to these cowboys that had become their competition. Um, and I think it was also just a control issue. You know, the WSGA was very heavily influenced and populated by politicians of Wyoming at that time. And so they were a very powerful organization and they certainly didn't want to give up any of that power. And people like Nate Champion, they certainly posed a threat to that. Members of the WSGA saw their influence waning. Homesteaders blocked their access to water. 
Cowboys like Nate Champion threatened their control of the roundup. The WSGA grew paranoid that someone was out to get them, spreading rumors about cattle theft, which you know did happen, but not to any real degree. To raise awareness of rustling, they offered a $1,500 reward for information leading to the conviction of a rustler. An absurd amount of money considering the cows were only worth $15 to $20 a piece at the time. Even with that high bounty, the WSGA struggled to convict anyone, something they saw as proof that the system was rigged against them. In reality, it was hard to prove someone stole a cow, so convictions were rare. So the WSGA used their media machine, and they painted Johnson County as a lawless land of rustlers, with articles printed all across the country. By doing so, they helped to dissuade people from moving to Johnson County and encroaching on public domain. As so often happens, they started to believe their own rhetoric. Big cattlemen felt like they were under attack and were quick to play the victim card. This is where we meet two of our main characters, Frank Major Wolcott and William Irvine. Wolcott and Irvine were interesting men. Wolcott was seen as erratic and vindictive. A once wealthy baron, he was nearly broke thanks to the blizzard of 1886 and 1887. The two men believed that the legislature treated them poorly, despite public perception that the state was in the pockets of the big cattlemen, and the reality that 14 members of the legislature were big stock owners. Together, Wolcott and Irvine created a philosophy their way of life was threatened by rustlers. The only way to end rustling was through a spree of lynchings, like the murder of Ellen Watson and James Averill from the top of the show. They made a list of people they thought should die for the good of the country. Wolcott and Irvine's idea eventually made it to the WSGA, where the proposition of hanging people without a trial was seen as the best course. Send a powerful message to the community, take matters into their own hands. They formed an assassination squad, all of which were employees of the WSGA. Literally an organized band of assassins backed and staffed by corporate cattlemen and, as we'll see, supported by the government. Their first victim was a man by the name of Tom Wagoner on June 4, 1891. The vigilantes went to his house near Newcastle, pretended to arrest him for horse theft, saying they were going to place him in jail. Wagoner's body was found 12 days later, hanging from a tree. Nobody was arrested for the murder. In fact, one of the men on the death squad was tapped to administer Wagoner's affairs. The hanging did not have its intended effect. People were not terrified that they'd get pegged for rustling, because it turns out, Wolcott and Irvine may not have picked the right victim. First of all, not many people liked Wagner. And second, the WSGA wasn't bragging about the murder, so it was hard to know why he'd been killed in the first place. The Stock Growers Association settled on a new target, one who was better liked and brought them more trouble, Nate Champion, the man they dubbed the King of the Rustlers, who started his own association. Champion and another man had hunkered down in a cabin south of Buffalo. The assassination squad sneaked up on them and exchanged fire. Amazingly, Champion wasn't killed, 
In fact, he managed to mortally wound one of his attackers and pursue them even though he was greatly outnumbered. Eventually, tracking down Mike Shanzi, one of the would-be murderers. Shanzi, under threat of death, told Champion and several other men the names of the others in the assassination squad. This created a real problem for Walcott and Irvine, the two WSGA men in charge of the assassination squad. If Champion or any of the other men present at the confession investigated, it wouldn't take much to pin the murders on them. Their list of those who needed to die grew to include those who'd heard the confession. Nate Champion escaped with his life, for now. One month later, one of those witnesses to Shanzi's confession, John Tisdale, wouldn't be so lucky. I hopped in my car and drove to look at the site where a roadside sign is dedicated to the incident. There, the two-lane road rolls up and over hill after hill, not far from the TA Ranch. Headed south, I crossed a bridge spanning a sizable gulch, the location of this heinous crime. That what you're hearing right there is authentic Wyoming wind, because I am in Buffalo, Wyoming. I'm sitting just inside my car, uh, looking at a sign that says, Tisdale Divide. Now, it's one of those striking things about this area of Wyoming that there are several roadside signs attributed to a bunch of murders. This one has to do with the death of John A. Tisdale. He was riding on a cart through this area, and there's this gulch that I can see from the sign and an attacker laid in wait in that gulch uh, with a gun waiting for him to come by. Uh, the attacker jumped out of the gulch, shot him down, and Tisdale bled out on his kid's Christmas presents. Then the attacker took his cart and the body and dumped it in the gulch I'm looking at right now. Frank Canton, the former Johnson County Sheriff, was accused of the murder, but he was never brought to trial. Two days after Tisdale's murder, another man was found dead. Orley Jones was also discovered in a gully, his killers having waited for him under a bridge. Word of the murders spread far and wide, once again painting Johnson County as some lawless corner of the West, no doubt with the hope of keeping settlers from the area. But the death of these men was not enough for the WSGA, Wolcott, and Irvine. Their murderous streak was just beginning. In March of 1892, they assembled what they called an expedition to Johnson County. Equipped with the list of 70 men they wanted to assassinate, including the sheriff, county commissioners, and Nate Champion. We'll continue our story after this message. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. 
Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Members of the Wyoming Stock Growers Association were well-connected, many of them wealthy, representing business interests outside of Wyoming. Together, they created a plan to travel to Johnson County and murder 70 men in the hopes of reclaiming public domain grasslands and scaring off would-be cattle rustlers. One of the conspirators was Wyoming's governor, Amos Barber. He played an essential role in the strategy hatched by Wolcott and Irvine. Now, the plan was simple. Gather a band of men to travel via train from Cheyenne to Casper, then ride horses to Buffalo. Once there, kill people in leadership roles, including the sheriff and county commissioners, opening the door to wreak havoc. The assassination squad worried that the people of Buffalo might call upon the military for help. Fort McKinney, even today, sits on a hill overlooking the town. It wouldn't take long for them to respond once they were called to action. So, before the invasion began, Governor Barber ordered that Fort McKinney take orders only from him, not local law enforcement. The sheriff and mayor of Buffalo could not call for backup. The plan was to keep Buffalo isolated from the rest of the world. The WSGA arranged for telegraph wires to be cut at just the right time to keep the outside world in the dark. The expedition of 52 men was led by Frank Wolcott and seconded by Irvine. Here again is Sylvia Bruner, director of the Jim Gatchell Museum in Buffalo, Wyoming. It was pretty well organized. You know, they recruited hired guns from a variety of locations, primarily from Texas. They literally approached these men with a plan of what they wanted them to do. So they knew that it was murder for hire. There's no way around that. When the men finally arrived in Johnson County, a disagreement broke out. It was discovered that Nate Champion was just 14 miles away at the KC Ranch. One faction hoped to kill Champion first. Others wanted to stick with the plan, prioritize murdering the town's leadership. By now, Champion had achieved a sort of superhuman folklore, having fended off a group of assassins who greatly outnumbered him. The men wanted to eliminate him first, so they didn't have to watch their backs. They bickered for a considerable amount of time, eventually settling on a vote. Champion would die first. The invaders rode to the ranch and surrounded the little ranch cabin. Then they proceeded to have what ended up being a full day standoff. Gunshots started around 8 a.m. A man inside the cabin with Champion was injured. Champion managed to wound three men, two of them seriously. The invaders hesitated to move closer to the cabin because Champion was a crack gunman, which cost them even more time and the element of surprise. A neighbor heard the shots and went to town for help. A second man rode by with his stepson, narrowly escaping with their lives, leaving behind their cart. They too went for help. The expedition no longer had the element of surprise, not on Champion and not on Johnson County. The town of Buffalo would be alerted soon enough, and they still hadn't killed their target. How to get Nate Champion out of the cabin? They took the cart that was left behind 
and lit it on fire. Using it for cover, they rolled the wagon against the cabin and watched as fire overtook it. Champion had no place to go. He waited until there was plenty of smoke and then broke through the window using the smoke as cover. He was shot first in the elbow, then in the chest. In all, Nate Champion was hit by 10 bullets and died in the smoke. His killers recovered his body and pinned a note to his shirt saying, Thieves beware. The invaders had a difficult decision to make. Their detour to the Casey Ranch cost them almost two days. The town of Buffalo certainly knew something was up and was probably assembling a posse to come after them. Some of the men hoped to march to Fort McKinney, where they expected the military would protect them with the help of the governor. But that would mean crossing through Buffalo. They decided instead to ditch their original plan and head for the TA Ranch, where they could regroup and build defenses to protect themselves. What they didn't particularly think about was that it kind of sits down in a little bit of a hole and you have these hills around you. If you go to the ranch today, it's a beautiful site with these gorgeous, massive cottonwood trees. None of them existed at the time. So everything was open and visible and you were kind of an easy target. It was not the best place to hunker down for battle. After my discussions with Sylvia, I drove out to the TA to see it for myself. Hello. Hi there. Are you Kirsten? Okay, great. Where I met a lovely new friend, Kirsten Giles. Kirsten and her family have worked for decades to restore the property. The TA is now a lovely guest ranch where you can ride horses, get a good meal, and take a tour of this famous battle. This is where the invading force settled in. We started our tour in the barn during a snowstorm, much like the one the invaders encountered. So this is where they hold up. Once the uh, invading forces came here, they split into two camps. And one was sort of management, and then the other one were the enlisted men. And this is where the enlisted men ended up. And they, if you'll turn around, and I'll walk this way, um, you can see where they've carved their names in the door. So they came in here, and they went upstairs, and then there are cutouts where they used eye sockers to sort of cut out holes for where their guns could come out as portals so they could defend themselves here in the barn. I don't think it took very many shots with them up in the loft for them to figure out that being in the loft of the barn was a really strategically bad decision. So they all dropped down here into the central part of the barn. And if you look here, you can see where there are cutouts next to the door. And this is where they use the ice auger to cut out two holes and they had people sitting on the other side here and they could defend themselves to that direction. You can see, as you look in the back, there's not a lot of room no. for you to be sitting behind this wall. And so there weren't very many people that were defending them from entrance from the um, city of Buffalo. So I think everybody else was sitting in here probably stressed out because they couldn't do anything and probably looking for something to do and very cold, very hungry. And so they carved their names on the door of the barn. The invaders used what time they had to build fortifications, locate the best defensive positions and prepare for the coming battle. They dug trenches and fortified the house, barn and ice house. Back in the town of Buffalo, the sheriff tried to get the help of the military stationed nearby but they were on orders from Governor Barber not to intervene. Word spread quickly around Buffalo that the town was under attack. 
one local merchant threw open his doors to anyone who would take part in laying siege to the TA ranch. By April 11th, at least 200 men from the area surrounded the TA ranch, where Walcott, Irvine, and their men were holed up. In the process, they intercepted the supply wagon from the invaders, which carried ammunition, food, and dynamite, effectively trapping the invading force inside the ranch with no provisions. They had the bad guys surrounded. The plan for the townspeople was pretty simple. Make sure nobody leaves, and don't allow the enemy any food or supplies. Eventually, they'll have to come out, or die of starvation. Actually being here in person and seeing the area, this seems like a really strategically poor area to come to if you're going to hole up somewhere uh, with the invaders because they took the low ground and not the high ground. We say that every winter (laughs) as we're standing here in the middle of a snowstorm and it floods every spring because it is, it's the low ground. This is literally the lowest point. And so it, it was really strategically a difficult place for them to choose. On the flip side, they didn't really have any other choices. And if you turn around and look at the top of the hill, so another way to look at this is that so at the top of that hill they had the cattlemen stronghold and that's where they put some 15 or 20 men they dug a little pit it's not little it's a big pit and they put wood that was used to build the cookhouse that we were just standing in they put that up there and then that was how they defended to the west so strategically what they were doing was using this hill to defend to the west up here in the loft of the barn they had the north and the south and then they defended to the east in the ranch house building which we're going to go see in a minute they thought out their defenses just maybe not their supplies or their exit 300 men in the town posse surrounded the ranch they exchanged a volley of gunfire but there was no coordinated effort made on either side of the attack townspeople didn't really need to risk their lives making a push into the barn or the house They just had to wait as the insurgents grew colder and hungrier in the snowstorm. Kirsten took me inside the farmhouse to see what the battle was like in there. They had people from the city of Buffalo are in these hills, and they're firing back on this position. And in here, you've got someone sitting in this window. That was Irvine, one of the two men who plotted this attack. Many of the grunts and hired men were outside, exposed to the weather. He was in charge and got a cushier assignment, choosing this window inside the house. With his knee up in the window and his gun sitting here, and as they fired with that bison rifle this way, the first shot lands right here in the wall, and then the next shot comes through the window and shoots his toe off. And so all of a sudden, He's sitting here with a shot off toe and he's bleeding, you know, and they've got a terrible problem. If you look at the picture of all the insurgents taken after the fact, you can see that Irvine is using a cane thanks to his missing toe. Incidentally, you can spend the night in that room if you book a stay at the ranch. On April 11th, Wolcott managed to sneak a note out addressed to the governor. This was another crucial mistake of the invaders' plan. Not only could the townspeople not get word out because the telegraph lines were cut, neither could they. The nearest working telegraph lines were more than 100 miles away in Douglas. The young man who sneaked out had no choice but to make the journey. 
At that point, Governor Barber had no new information. As far as he knew, the WSGA plan was going perfectly, when, in reality, the men were under siege. It wasn't until days later that he learned the scope of the troubles when the telegram reached Douglas, Wyoming. Once he knew what was going on, Barber sent telegrams to U.S. President Benjamin Harrison, purposefully masking the fact that the people being attacked were murderers. When that didn't work, Barber fired off messages to Wyoming Senators Kerry and Warren. The Senators then woke up President Harrison and implored him to help the invaders. President Harrison issued orders for troops from Fort McKinney to restore peace and safely transport the invaders to Fort McKinney. The next morning was April 13, 1892. The posse had just about completed a contraption they hoped would force the invaders out of the buildings. They called it a go-devil. Here again is Sylvia. They decided to create this go-devil. And the purpose was to create a rolling barricade that they could move up to the buildings while hiding, taking protection behind the barricade itself made of logs. And then they could be within range to shoot, and they could also throw things like Molotov cocktails at the buildings, very much like what happened in KC. I think it, they were going to throw dynamite, the, the dynamite that was going to be used against them. Yeah. Uh, the invaders had brought dynamite in these carts. They disassembled the carts, and they were going to throw the dynamite at the invaders. Yes. Which I think is pretty impressive kind of imagery, if you, if you think about it. But if you look at what, what's being depicted here in this diorama, you know, there's a kind of a wall of logs built at the front of two wagons that have been put side by side together. And then they're backwards, so they'd be driving them backwards. So the tongue would be at the, the backside, which all the men would be at as well, because they're kind of hiding behind this log wall. I just don't know how you'd steer that thing. And I also don't know how you'd stop it. If you're going down a hill and it weighs how many hundreds of pounds, it seems like it might be a bit of a loose cannon to me. How successful it would have been, we're never really going to know because the cavalry literally showed up in the nick of time and kind of put a stop to the events. As they finished their preparations, a bugle was heard in the distance. The military had arrived from Fort McKinney, ordering everyone to cease fire. The invasion was over. Wolcott, the leader of the invaders, surrendered 45 men only one of which was mortally wounded. Nobody in the posse had been hurt, despite days of dispersed gunfire. Wolcott insisted sometime later that the invaders could have broken out anytime they wanted to, which was nonsense. They were outnumbered 10 to one. The military escorted the invaders from the TA ranch and led them back to Fort McKinney, largely unharmed. The legal battle that took place next was nothing short of a farce. It was decided that the invaders could not receive a fair trial in Johnson County, so the men were transferred to Cheyenne, a part of the state that was friendly to big cattlemen. For a lot of the people who remained in Cheyenne, I don't think it really affected their daily lives because the majority of the residency in Cheyenne, they had been familiar with all of these newspaper articles saying how lawless and awful Johnson County was. So when they kind of heard about the invasion, and even though it was unsuccessful, I don't think they really judged these people the same way that residents of Johnson County did. Because in their mind, 
It was deserved. It was justified. That's what they had been fed for so long. For the residents in this area, it was a completely different story. The newspapers painted Johnson County again as a lawless den of rustlers. Some papers even praised the cattlemen for taking justice into their own hands. The Cheyenne Daily Leader, the Cheyenne Daily Sun, and the Cheyenne Tribune were all owned by big cattlemen. And their stories of brave vigilantes taking justice into their own hands were reprinted throughout the region. The shenanigans that followed were kind of unbelievable. Walcott confessed to his crimes publicly in the newspapers, as did other invaders, believing that certainly the people of Wyoming were on their side. Jury selection was nearly impossible. It was decided that all of the men would be tried at the same time. During jury selection, each defendant would get 18 chances to turn away a jury member what's known as a preemptory challenge. Since they were all being tried together at the same time, they could effectively reject 774 prospective jury members in a city that, back then, was quite small. Then there was the cost of keeping the men jailed. Johnson County was on the hook to pay for the jailing of the defendants while they awaited trial, and while the defendants' lawyers dragged out the proceedings, making the cost go up with every new day. It seems by all accounts that their time in jail wasn't particularly hard on them. It seemed like they were all kind of having a pretty good time and being treated pretty well. Johnson County was responsible for the cost of all of those men to be incarcerated during that time. And so things just kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed, and that was rather intentional by the part of the invaders and the WSGA because they knew that Johnson County couldn't afford um, to keep all these men jailed while they put together a court case. Johnson County simply could not afford the bill. So the judge released the defendants on a type of bond that doesn't have to be paid up front. The defendants, now free, scattered to the wind, many of them never to return. Johnson County was supposed to have, I think, three lawyers present. And the only one who actually showed up was the youngest, brand new lawyer. But when he looked around and he realized that his senior lawyers representing Johnson County didn't even bother to appear, he went to the judge and said, basically, we're done. We give up. Mistrial. Whatever you want to call it. And that was pretty much where it ended as far as any repercussions for those people. The invaders were never punished for their crimes, despite many hundreds of witnesses, confessions in the newspapers, and clear ties to government corruption. The Johnson County War illustrates the conflicting motivations of the West, the drive to be independent, to keep the government out of our business, unless we need them. The federal government has been involved, at least for settlers, since day one. And you can't get around that because, like you said, you have the cattle barons and their pull within the government. And then the homesteaders, that was a governmental program. It's, it's also it's a, an interesting way to think about cowboys because, again, we think of them as these independent spirits, but many of them worked for large companies. It wasn't some person like some independent contractor out there with his own farm. It was an employee for the most part. Yeah, exactly. And that was certainly what brought the majority of people to to the state, honestly, was being an employee of pretty wealthy people. We romanticize so much of history (laughs) 
But when you really start looking into it, there's kind of the nitty gritty of profit, basically. The myth of the independent cowboy is just not true. This was and is the land of large corporate interests tangling with labor, with government, and with people trying to make a living. I think that people don't really understand the impact of the Johnson County Cattle War nationwide because there's a national component to this. Um, This model of invasion had been run in Montana before it was run in Wyoming. And I think that uh, people need to understand also that the cattlemen were here with connections to mining um, companies that were in Pennsylvania and in the East. And so this model where you come in loaded with guns and then you shoot your employees is something that had been done before when there were people who struck against them in a mining setting. And in this context, it's certainly the case where the cowboys that were here in Johnson County literally went on strike against their ownership. So uh, a lot of people, I don't think, see this as a labor uprising, which it was quite literally. Um, The cowboys were on strike against the ownership. But the issue was really that these these were major corporate interests that had these huge, enormous herds. That may seem trivial, but it is a vital reality of the American West. The image of the independent cowboy, the free market capitalist, the tough guy who wants the government to stay out of his business, is just not accurate. Native Americans were forced to leave this land by the U.S. government. The Homesteading Act was a government program. Cattle barons used their political connections to have laws built in their favor and, occasionally, to get away with murder. If you go to Johnson County, you still see hints of this today. Questions about oil and gas extraction, how to finance public programs, how to raise money in a state resistant to most forms of taxation. Wealthy people coming in from California, New York, Connecticut to take advantage of the tax benefits while not contributing to the community. The Johnson County War isn't simply a story illustrating that all corporations are evil. They're not, nor are all politicians or trade groups but it is a story of the true West. When we take the mythology of independence, one rugged individual striking out on their own and claiming it for themselves, we're believing a lie. It's also easy to say that the Johnson County War was the Old West, that things have definitely changed. In our next episode, we'll explore how this mentality plays out in modern day Wyoming how some of the wealthiest people in the world use government controls to avoid taxes and force working people out of the state. This episode could not have been done without the help of so many people. First of all, thanks to my financial supporters who covered the cost of a thousand mile trip to report the story. Thanks to Sylvia Bruner and everyone else at the Jim Gatchell Museum in Buffalo, Wyoming. Also, thanks to Kirsten Giles and the staff of the TA Ranch. You can view pictures, read more about the history, and book a room at taranch.com. I strongly recommend the tour. Special thanks to Renzi and Kale for letting me crash on their couch while I reported this story. Much of my research this episode came from the fantastic book, Wyoming Range War, by 
John W. Davis. You can view pictures of my visit to Johnson County, find links to helpful resources, and more at trucepodcast.com. I hope to do more of these on-location episodes in the future. If you'd like to help make that happen, visit trucepodcast.com slash donate. Once there, you can discover more about the show, listen to old episodes, and learn more about my novel, Cradle Robber, and my films, Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls. My series on the West continues in our next episode, which will take this story from the past and bring it into present day. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.